0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale
1: University. Hi, everyone. This is Austin Vernierski on behalf of the Yale Sustainable Food Program. Um, This is part of a series of podcasts that coincide with our Chewing the Fat Speaker series, um, which happens throughout uh, both semesters. But this semester, we're focusing on the theme of women in food. Um, It is my pleasure to introduce Samin Nasrat. Who is a chef, teacher, or should I say cook? You can say whatever. I can say whatever. (laughs) She is a cook, teacher, and writer from Berkeley, and she has a forthcoming cookbook coming out called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. um, Due out March 2017.
0: You'll probably all be have children.
1: We'll probably all be graduated. graduated. Half of like the freshmen now will be writing their theses. Yeah, it's all very exciting.
0: Far, far away.
1: Um, but yeah, let's jump into this. Um tell us a little bit about how you sort of came to uh wanting to write a cookbook.
0: Oh wow. Uh well I've always wanted to write a book. I've always wanted to write. And so cookbooks sort of naturally came out of my cooking career. I, I always um I've always pursued both simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And even as I started cooking, I was already writing. Uh, And this particular book has a good story because I I started cooking at a restaurant called Chez Panisse in Berkeley, which is a beloved restaurant that's been there for a long time. And one of uh, its hallmarks is a changing menu, a daily changing menu that changes with the seasons. And I, when I started cooking, I knew nothing. And I was coming into these menu meetings every single day with the chefs and at 2 p.m. we'd sit down. And the chef who'd written the menu would sort of go through his vision for all of the dishes, and then just assign a dish to each of the cooks. And the restaurant sort of has its tradition, its culinary traditions, um, in all of all of the Mediterranean coast, all the way from Spain through Provence and Nice down the coast of Italy. And then sometimes things appear on the menu from Northern Africa or from Iran or India or even Mexico. And so every single day, we'd be cooking all of these different things. And I couldn't believe that all of the cooks knew how to make everything, no matter what it was. And most of the stuff at that point, I was 19 years old, I hadn't even heard of yet. And so I just sort of had this perpetual headache, and I felt like I was always behind treading water, trying to figure out what they were doing. And it was really mind-boggling because they would be assigned a dish and then go into the kitchen and start cooking it. No one ever asked what temperature the oven should be set at or how many minutes something should cook for or all of the things that are specified in recipes. We never used cookbooks. And so... I just – I didn't understand. And in a kitchen, it's always moving so quickly. There isn't time for some 19-year-old kid who knows nothing to be asking questions every five seconds. And so um, I just always – I I I was compiling all this information, and I didn't understand how it all fit together. And after about a year of really just working hard and paying attention, I started to see a pattern in that everything we cooked, no matter what cuisine its food was inspired by um, – we really, really had four things in common. And the cooks were always paying attention to salt, fat, acid, and heat, as in the temperature. And so, and really even that could boil down to just two temperatures, high and low. There weren't really super... Even on the ovens we used, most of the, like, um, specific numbers on the temperature dial had been worn off. So we would just tell the temperature in the oven by sticking our arm in and seeing how hot, like, the air, the air was hitting it. Um, but I... Yeah. And I remember this moment I had sort of this like, you know, light bulb moment. And I went to one of the chefs and I said, oh, I think I figured something out. I think I figured out. It's all about salt, fat, acid and heat, isn't it? And he just looked at me and he was like, duh. (laughs) He was like, everyone knows that. (laughs) And I said, no, everyone doesn't know that. And nobody told me and no one has ever told home cooks. And I was just like, I'm going to write a book. This is so simple. It really clarifies everything. And I'm going to teach people how to cook. And then I I even like got out a legal pad and started writing. And then I was like, okay, I'm 19. No one's going to listen to me. So probably I should put this aside. So that sort of that system became the system that I used to sort of file all of the information that I learned over my cooking career. And then eventually I started teaching other younger cooks and then um, other cooking classes. And at um in 2006, I asked the writer Michael Pollan if I could audit his class, and he resisted at first, but then he let me in. Mm-hmm. And, and eventually, he asked me to teach him how to cook um, as a part of the research for a book that he was writing about sort of the history of cooking and human nature and culture. And um, very quickly, After I started teaching him, he picked up on my obsession with salt, fat, acid and heat. Mm -hmm. And he would sit down and record with me every once in a while. So he'd have um, quotes from me in my own words to use in the book. And... At one point, like in one of our first interviews, he was like, what is the deal? Like, you're so obsessed with salt, fat, acid, and heat. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, that's my system. And I always thought I'd write a book about that. But I don't know. I just never did that. And he was like, there's your cookbooks. I mean, like turn this into a book, make it a curriculum and turn it into a book. And so, um, and in the meantime, I'd been bringing him every week an idea for a different book. And every idea I brought him was horrible. He was always telling me it was terrible and I should not pursue those. Which I think having someone who really edits ideas for you is a, a great gift. Mm-hmm. But he also really supported this one. And so I did exactly what he said. I turned it into a curriculum and I taught it for three or four years. And then I really sat down and, and turned that curriculum into into a book, which has been a big project. It's been Three years now I've been working on it and I have another, about another year.
1: So what's its format? Is it mainly recipes or is it, is um, it a narrative? It's different for okay. sure, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> which yeah. I'm really
0: excited about because I think for me, I feel like typical cookbooks, you know, which are often very beautiful and inspiring um, on, on certain sort of sensual levels don't often teach you the actual mechanics of what's going on in cooking. And so there's sort of this broad spectrum of, there's Harold McGee, who is sort of my idol, who mm. wrote this amazing book on food and cooking, which is just this like science encyclopedia of what's happening in the kitchen. And then at the other end of the spectrum, there's the most beautiful, you know, books that are mostly pictures and and maybe have recipes, but maybe not, or or, or maybe their recipes are tested, but maybe not. And so it's really more that you're drawing inspiration from the way things look. and um, And I just felt like neither was sort of the most useful for the everyday home cook. And I wanted to try and figure out something where it's beautiful and useful for everyone or for as broad of a range of people. And I've noticed and learned over over my course over my experience of teaching people that um people learn differently. You know, and I'm a really visual learner. People a lot of times learn by making mistakes in the kitchen and learning Mm -hmm. what not to do the next time. Um and and also people learn by seeing. And so I have tried my best to figure out ways to incorporate visuals and stories of my own aha moments a lot of mistakes that I made and learned from um there is some very basic science I'm definitely not a scientist but I've I've done my best to sort of understand the chemistry of what's happening and then explain it in in plain and kind of fun English and I'm working with this illustrator who I adore who I've like I stalked her for years I've just been such a huge fan of hers her name is Wendy McNaughton and um She, I think, is really special and talented in part because of her own background, part of which is a social work background. And so she has this um, incredible way of organizing and presenting information in really hilarious and helpful and informative ways. She's sort of a human live infographic maker with a really good sense of humor. And so and so, even though she hadn't done a ton of food-related um, illustration when I came across her work, I just knew something about the way she presented things visually would really work uh, with the way that I was thinking of telling, teaching people how to cook. So for example, we're going to have flow charts that help, deci- help you figure out how to make decisions while you're cooking in the kitchen. and. Um, We're going to have an XY axis of salads from salad dressings from creamiest to lightest and, you know, things to dress from crunchiest to most tender. So you can start to see how things work because just like with salt, fat, acid, and heat, you know, where my point is, if you can master these four things, you can make pretty much anything taste good. I want to get things across in the recipe section of the book that you really don't need to know 50 million recipes. If you know a few basic recipes, just a few tweaks can get you really, really far. So very long answer to your short question, but, um, the book will be organized. It's almost two books. The whole first part is a narrative, um, about salt, fat, acid, and heat, and the whole second part is a little bit more traditional recipe section, but definitely with a lot of amazing visuals from Wendy.
1: Mm -hmm. So what are your thoughts on baking, which is... Oh
0: gosh, baking. (laughs) I'm a horrible, well, I'm not a horrible baker, but I'm not a natural baker. I always say people are either born savory cooks or pastry cooks because you definitely like can be an off-the-cuff improviser or you are born the type of precise person who will make all of your mise en place and have all of your, you know, your little bowl of like measured out chocolate chips and your measured out everything and put it all in the right order and follow the recipe exactly word for word. And only through years of messing things up because I was trying to improvise them or because I assumed that I knew better than the people who had written the recipes, have I really come to a place where I really do follow um, pastry recipes faithfully? And I'm trying, I'm trying really hard to convey that in my book as well, that there are certain places for improvisation where it's natural and other places where I think really following recipes until you become very, very familiar with them and then understand what you can change is important.
1: Mm -hmm. So you've sort of honed your skill uh, at Chez Panisse, which is this sort of food movement mecca um, under the sort of uh, auspices of Alice Waters. Um, How does someone who just graduated from college with a degree in English get their foot in the door at this sort of Holy ground. Dude, holy land. I wrote a letter. Okay.
0: <laughs> so my story's it's a good one. Um my college boyfriend was from the Bay Area and he he really was who I learned how to eat with. I mean, I'd grow I'd grew up eating delicious food. My family's from Iran and my mom is a great cook, but um I I grew up in San Diego where there isn't a huge restaurant culture and absolutely in my family like the food we could eat at home was a million times more delicious than anything we could get apart from, like, fish tacos or Chinese food mm-hmm. in San Diego. So I didn't even know what Chez Panisse was when I came to college. And, you know, that was in 1997 I started school, and that was sort of like the food network was still budding and young. and There, wasn't, there weren't food blogs. Celebrity chef culture really didn't exist yet. And the idea even of a famous restaurant, which someone my orientation week said, like, there's a famous restaurant here in Berkeley. To me that seemed so foreign. And... Um, but once I met my boyfriend, he really, we spent a lot of our time together eating. And since he was from San Francisco, he took me to all of his favorite, like his favorite ice cream place and his favorite pizza place. And he had always wanted to go to Chez Panisse. So we saved our money for nine months or seven or nine months. And we saved $220, which like, you know, when we bet each other, the loser would put the money in there or the laundry change or whatever. And um, and we decided if we were only going to go to Chez Panisse once, we would like, go on the fanciest night downstairs in the in the more formal restaurant. And the day came and we put on our nicest clothes and we went there. And, the you know, it was a really magical experience dining there, partly for me because I'd never eaten in, in, in a fine dining restaurant before. And so just to have so many people attending to us and making sure we had everything and the bread was never empty and the butter and the water and the wine and everything, uh, it was really... It was really magical the food itself was great but to me absolutely it was just like the complete experience was what blew me away and for dessert we had chocolate souffle and when the server brought it she asked me if i knew if i would ever eaten or if i knew how to eat chocolate souffle if i'd ever had it before and i said no please show me so she showed me how to poke a hole with my spoon and pour the like accompanying raspberry sauce in so that every bite would have some of the sauce in it so she waited and i took a bite and she said, how is it? And I was like, oh, gosh, it's so good. It's so good. But do you know You know what would make it even better?
1: <laughs> and she oh, said, what? No. And I
0: said, I said, a glass of cold milk. And, uh, and she sort of laughed and she went off to get me milk. And she also brought us a glass of dessert wine. Because what I didn't know in that moment, and I think she must have just found it so sweet because I was, you know, like 19 years old was that improper fine dining and once i moved to italy this became abundantly clear to me that really only children drink milk after 10 a.m like you never even to have a cappuccino or like a a cafe latte after 10 a.m is considered like kind of disgusting by anyone who like with european background who knows how to properly eat so that i was asking for milk with my chocolate souffle was i mean i think it was just plain charming to her like that's all i think it could have been so uh, it was just really sweet, and I was so inspired by that dinner that I I was I I worked all through college, and I was like, wow, maybe I could work at this place. So I wrote a letter to Alice Waters saying I had had this really inspiring dinner, and could I please get a job as a busser? And I would do anything. And I brought it in, and they directed me to give my resume and this letter to the floor manager. And so when I turned the corner into her office, the floor manager was the woman, the server who had brought me the milk and the souffle. And so she recognized me. And I think it was just good timing or something, because I think they were really short staffed. And so she hired me and I started the next day. And just walking through the kitchen, you know, my very first job, my very first day, they walk you through the kitchen, which is all lined with copper, and the cooks are in there and, and and in their beautifully pressed white coats and every and there's just displays of fresh fruit and vegetables everywhere. And uh, you know, I in my memory, I'm sure it's like exaggerated, but the cooks, like I would walk by them and they would smile and their teeth would sparkle. Like it was just like a cartoon version of 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 a beautiful, perfect kitchen. It was just so enchanting. And so you walk through the kitchen and your first job is they have you vacuum the floor and I just remember being like I can't believe they're trusting me to vacuum the floor of Chez Panisse like from the first second I worked there it just felt like such a huge honor it was really it was really amazing and and very quickly that sort of enchanting experience of being around the cooks and admiring them turned into me wanting to be a cook. So I just started begging them, and, and eventually I convinced them that I was serious, and they allowed me to be an intern, and then finally they hired me.
1: So how, do, how what, would the, what would your story sort of look like if you did that at any other restaurant? How do you think Chez Panisse <sighs> is sort of central to your...
0: Wow, that's a great question. No one's ever asked me that before.
1: <laughs> like what? If, what if this oh, was a a Chili's and?
0: <laughs> you know, um, I just, you know, Chez Panisse is a restaurant that um, sits at the foot of the temple at, of the senses, and everything about it is um, is there to serve a heightened sensory experience for everyone who works there, for everyone who dines there, for everyone who has anything to do with it. And I, there are so many amazing things that have happened in my life as a result of sort of that funny dinner and working there. Um, But one of the most valuable is that I got an aesthetic education that I don't think I could have, or would have necessarily gotten anywhere else. And um even if, may, I mean, and maybe some part of the story is me and that I am ambitious and work hard. Mm-hmm. And so maybe even in a Chili's, I could have found something beautiful about working there. But um, I think it was more of like a sensory assault, <laughs> you know, like a working at Chez Panisse where everything taught me something about how to live a fuller and better and more vibrant life and... I don't think that could have been the same anywhere else.
1: What do you think of celebrity chef culture as it exists today? Like you are a professional cook or a chef sort of in the in the limelight, in the public sphere, um, along with, you know, all of these other sort of great minds.
0: Wow, that's a big question. I think I, it would be hard for me to have a completely one-sided response. Mm-hmm. I think on the one hand... Um, It's been amazing for cooking and for the food movement and for cooks to have um, sort of greater visibility via the celebrity chef phenomenon. But I think um, that it perpetuates a lot of mistruths or, yeah, just mistruths Mm -hmm. about what it means to be a cook and um, what's, what are what the most important parts of cooking and, and food and being a cook are. And I think one really clear symptom of that is um, there are no cooks. There's sort of this thing happening in a lot of restaurants, and I know it's not unique to the Bay Area. And I know it's really true here in New York too. I get an email at least once a week, if not more, or a text or a phone call from chefs, for who I with whom I'm friends and some with whom I'm not even I've never met people I've never even met before. Everyone's looking for cooks. Everyone is looking for good cooks. There is just a drought of good cooks and or really of any cooks. People more people than ever before I think are going to culinary school. Mm-hmm. Um but they sort of immediately graduate and want to be a celebrity chef or they want to be a chef or have their own restaurant. And I think one of the sort of magical and very lucky things for me was the timing of my cooking career that I got in sort of at the last minute before when when still I was, I was being taught by people who'd been cooking for 25 years or longer. I had a lot of incredible people to look up to and learn from. And I think that that's changing a lot. I mean, cooking is a really hard career. It chews people up and spits them out physically and emotionally and financially. And there's only so long you can really work in restaurants before you have to go be something else or do something else. And for me, I'm really glad that I've always had writing as my other, another really lucrative career. (laughs) (laughs) But at least something else to do, two other things which I can intertwine. But um but there there's just a lack of people who are willing to do the hard work i was always a smart kid all of my friends in 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 school alongside me they were all the smart kids everyone went to ivy leagues you know and i was sort of the like and i went to cal and and people i was around i was always around intellectually motivated peers And it was this kind of really strange detour that I took into a kitchen. And I had a lot of embarrassment about that in my 20s. Because I was making $10 an hour and I was mopping the kitchen floor and I was, you know, doing all of the hard work and I was, you know, had my elbows up to whatever in pig's blood or whatever it was. And people that I'd known since middle school were now like, you know, Supreme Court clerks and going on into medical school and have, you know, making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year after business school. And I didn't have any of that. I didn't have any outward sort of obvious um, signs of success And that was a really big egotistical pill for me to swallow. But I'm also an immigrant kid. And for me, I really came up in a kitchen at a time where like there was no other thing. Of course, I was going to start at the bottom and work my way up because everyone there had also done that. People had started as dishwashers or bussers or whatever. And there seems to be something that's disappeared about that readiness to, to start at the bottom and to do the dirty work. And, and to do that hard work. And now, and I don't know what percentage of it is celebrity chef culture that's like glamorized and promoted this thing and made it seem like, oh, this is completely attainable. But you know, how many celebrity chefs are there? 12? Like, <laughs> you know, and there's hundreds, there's hundreds of thousands of people cooking in restaurants in this country. So it's just, it's not real. There's not really, it's not, there's a, there's a lie being perpetuated and that's something I really don't appreciate about celebrity chef culture Mm -hmm. is
1: this like glamorization of a job that's never been glamorous so I think a lot of things in food you could argue are sort of um, glamorized or fetishized Um, uh, we were talking earlier about this sort of like buzzfeedification of food Um, you know what can get the most hearts on Instagram as opposed to like what can you know Nourish the most, or I don't know, satisfy the most senses, Some, something like right. that. Let's find it. We'll find an apt metaphor eventually. <laughs> um, but to what, yeah, I'm wondering to what extent is that sort of interest helpful, and to what, at what point is it hurtful, or at what point does it just not make sense?
0: I, I. That's so hard – it's really hard for me to sit here and comment on mm-hmm. because on the one hand, you know, I, I'll just – I can speak to my own experience. I use Instagram a lot. Same. And,
1: <laughs> Guilty as charged. <laughs>
0: and uh, I have a really tortured relationship to social media. And sometimes I, I, I love – I love the idea that I can just be cooking my lunch at home and it's an avocado smeared on bread or whatever – And I can find a beautiful moment about that and share that with people. And maybe that'll make them want to go and make something for themselves. And I love that that can be sort of transmitted through the ether. Um, But... I also am at the same time conscious that every single photo I take, I move everything just so, and even I'm like part of the the glamorization machine. I'm not proud to do it. I I always joke that I should start a hashtag called Full Disclosure Friday, where it's like show like take two steps back and show the entire rest of the kitchen, you know. (laughs) But um, but so I think that there's good parts about it and and less healthy parts about it. There. There was that great um Instagram account, the sociality Barbie. did you see that Mm-mm. it was this it was like hipster Barbie who sort of just was this amazing parody of every sort of um trope on on instagram and on social media of like glamorizing the coffee and glamorizing every sort of aspect of everything so in some ways, I feel like the um the appreciation of the senses and putting the senses first, and the prioritizing of the senses that Chechnya has been so such an important um, force in promoting, has sort of been distorted via Instagram and via social media and via this glamorization on TV, and so people ha- at home are almost these. Um, it's almost like they're they're oh, what's the word. I don't want to say fake, but it's more like they're like it's like a costume version of, you know, you see some chef doing some grand like making a puree and swizzling it on the plate using a whatever. And so you somehow think that that's what you're supposed to do at home or that'll make your home cooking better or more special. But really, it doesn't. It doesn't make it, you know, those things are based on. There's a problem for any good chef who's doing those things. There's a reason why he or she has chosen to cook foods and present them in a certain way. And I think part of what that glamorization and chef culture has done is it's confused the general public. You know, dinner at home can just be dinner at home. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be some grand thing cooked out of a cookbook with 45 ingredients. And there's sort of this conflation of, even I find I do it sometimes and I, I work so hard in my own head to stop, to stop doing this and to convince other people to stop doing this. But like, I'm just so used to writing three or more course menus and eating in restaurants where it's like three or more courses that to me, like dinner has come to symbolize three courses minimum. But at home, it doesn't need to be that. At home, it can just be rice and chicken. And so there is this idea, I think, where a lot of people have tried to like up their home cooking game, or, or whatever. And and it just it gets, it's it's intimidating. It like ends up demoralizing you. You don't cook anything. You just want to go out. So, in my my hope is like we can just reclaim dinner. You know, reclaim mm-hmm. home cooking.
1: That's a hashtag. So, in the making. Yeah. <laughs> um it's just like a fine line um to toe what do you think um like how can we re how does it how does your book maybe aim to do oh. that how how is information presented differently in a way that it is sort of uh it sort of nudges the it, it 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 gives the reader realistic expectations about what they're supposed to be doing. What
0: a lovely question. I love it.
1: <laughs> I came um, up with it just now. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, I think about that I think about that a lot and there is for me um that was something I struggled with actually a lot in the beginning was as and I've learned this as a person writing a book absolutely if you need to create the momentum for a reader to want to finish the whole book there has to be a sense of authority in my voice, and it took me a long time to really um, circle around and, and land on that on that voice appropriately. I remember the moment it happened, the draft of where it happened. My editor was so happy because she had been really wanting me to take take ownership of what I was saying, and I kept wanting to like refer to the outer outside world and say, "Well, some cooks do it this way, and some cooks do it this way," and. Um, but with authority, you know comes part of taking a stand is and saying yes to doing it one way is to say is saying no to doing it all these other ways and um and that can seem harsh and part of what I'm trying to do in all of my work is is just to engage and encourage people to start cooking more and have more engagement on their own sensory level with, in, the daily, in their own daily lives with cooking and with food. And so um, I've I've been maybe overly sensitive to what my yes, to all the no's that are the partner to my yes. And so it, it really has been a mental thing that I find... It took me so long to figure out how to do it in a way that... Um, Encourages people and inspires them, but never puts down any of their choices. And so, yes, definitely, of course, as like the child of the of Alice Waters, as a cook who came up at Chez Panisse, as the daughter of like a woman who spent 40% of my childhood driving all around Southern California looking for the best, like most delicious organic ingredients. Of course, I have beliefs about what I hope. how I hope people will shop and how I hope people will choose their ingredients, but never in a million years would I put that on someone, would I say to someone, oh, well, your way isn't good enough, or if you can't do this organic, don't do it at all, or, um, or, or any of those things. And it took me a really long time to figure out how do I do that authentically as myself and, and not hide my own beliefs, but not shame other people. So one big choice and job and part of this writing, this book has been finding that place and that voice of encouragement and, and inspiration. And the other part, I think a big part of it for me, whenever I pick up any food book is, is visually how it feels. And, 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 like how it inspires me with the way it looks, and most often um, that comes in photos. I love I love photography of all kinds. I love beautiful food photography, but very early on I realized that photography wasn't right for this book because of the sort of place where I was. I'm the note I'm trying to hit is I can teach you how to make anything if you can just figure out how to use these few things, these four things. And so if I had photos, if I had a photo of like a perfect pork dish with potatoes and greens, the message that that photo is sending is make this, if your pork dish doesn't look like this pork and potatoes and greens exactly and it doesn't the thing's not browned in this way and you don't use these greens and this pork cut then it's wrong then your thing's not hitting the ideal note and so by having illustration one of the I wanted that um that visual message of what the right or perfect dish looks like um I just felt like illustrations could could loosen that and soften soften that a lot. So Wendy is a great representational artist, and there will be absolutely beautiful food um, drawings. But I think the sort of benefit of not having photos is that I'm not sending the message that you have to have the precise ingredients or cook it exactly in this way, or that it needs to look exactly in like the photo to be to be deemed a success. And so that's one thing that I, I think um, I've put a lot of thought into. And then also um, using Wendy's amazing talents in, in terms of infographics and um, ex- explaining things visually, I think will be helpful too. Um, yeah, so.
1: So there are a couple of classes at Yale that are focused on food and food history and culinary history. Um, And I think the cookbook is often seen as this really rich primary source that can not only be read sort of as a as a text, you know, standalone what these recipes are, but also the sort of marginalia and like Mm -hmm. all of the fun sort of formats they come in. Um, What sort of choices and you've discussed a little bit about uh, those illustrations, but um, maybe what are some some cookbooks out there that have really inspired you? Um, I know your approach is relatively novel, too. Um, and then also, what do you hope, what do you hope comes across in the sort of between the lines of your recipes? Oh, wow. If someone, yeah, (laughs) if someone were analyzing salt, fat, acid, heat in, say, 50 years, what would they conclude? Wow, these
0: are really good questions. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, (laughs) I will say, um... (laughs) I the one of the choices that I've made both in my like as I write in my language and in cho- in like deciding what um references we make to culture and also in terms of the illustrations is I hope this is sort of like pasted at the above my computer is I want this book to be timeless and not timely. And so I feel like, and in fact, that was another sort of vote for illustration rather than photography, was I feel like photography and book design very often will date a book. And you, I can look at a lot of cookbooks and know like what decade they were published in based on the design and the cover and the photos and stuff. And I, I think about books that have lasted the test of time. And a lot of them are illustrated or have no, are just words. You know, um, The Joy of Cooking has great... Sort of pencil drawings, um, you know. M.F.K. Fisher, who's just like the the one, the one to beat, hasn't. You know, there's nothing but words in there. And so, um, in a way, I think I, my hope is that we will strike some sort of note that really is speaks much. Will last much longer than me. I want my book to last on the shelves. I want it because hopefully, what I'm saying, I think what I'm saying is universal truths and so they they aren't specifically about a style of cooking or a certain kind of food that that will date it in that way so that's one choice um i don't i and i i hope that that's visible in 50 years maybe this podcast will still be around in 50 years and someone will hear it and go check we
1: can only a little uh, footnote citation
0: <laughs> and then um and what was the beginning of your question could you remind me
1: Um, yes, I think I, oh, I was just wondering, um, oh, well, you sort of answered it, sort of what were, what are the inspirational of um, foundational cookbooks? Oh,
0: yeah. I mean, other books I think that are, that have been really inspirational to me. I mean, in terms of illustration, um, Patricia Curtin, who's, who is the great artist who's illustrated all of Alice, not all, but almost all of Alice Waters cookbooks, she does beautiful, beautiful line drawings. And I think, um, and lithographs and her line drawings in the art of simple food are just so, so beautiful. And it's all black and white. And to me, that's even more masterful, you know, to not even to get to convey so much without even color. Um, but, and the list of cookbooks that I love, is so long that I'm not even <laughs> sure we should get into it. But <laughs> but I will say I um, am really excited to be working with both Wendy and our. we are working with a book designer who's so brilliant. Mm-hmm. And I think that working with people who can think about information and laying information out in the most useful and beautiful way is so fun and cool and inspiring. And it's one of the best parts of making a book. It's, I don't know a ton about design. Um, it's not, you know, but I am, have always been interested in it. And in some ways, I hope that that what, you know, I feel like what good design does is um, you don't even notice good design, right? Mm. It just accomplishes mm-hmm. its task. And hopefully in a way, if people like can absorb the lessons of the book, you won't even like, at some point, thinking about salt, fat, acid, and heat will just always be on in the background of your mind. So it, ideally, if we achieve what we want to achieve, it'll come through on so many levels on the way the, the experience of the book, of holding it, of reading it, and then of the message of the book as well.
1: And what does that collaboration look like? Um, I think when we think of someone like writing a novel, for example, it's a very like solitary experience. But what is the sort of meeting of the minds that happens. Oh, it's pretty awesome. Well,
0: I am already... I'm a collaborative... I, like, tend toward collaboration. um, And writing has been, for sure, really solitary and at times really difficult. But um, all throughout, I've checked in periodically and regularly with both Wendy and Ulro, our designer. They both live locally in the Bay Area, so we see each other pretty regularly or we're just always checking in. And I remember the first time... Alvaro came in. We came. We brought him in a little bit later. But Wendy and I had um, made what's called a two-page spread. So like it's just both pages, a two-page illustration where you open it up and it's both pages of the book. And we had made this one that was sort of an instructive spread about brazing. And it's super beautiful. And so we had tried to figure out, like, should it be horizontal? Should it be vertical? Should it, and how should the information go? And we figured all that out. And then, and we were thinking about it both in terms of the book. And then what if the book gets printed into a larger poster? And then what would that mean for the illustration? And finally, she decided to write braise at the top across the middle. So she wrote that. And then when we later, a couple months later, met with our designer we brought him in, we showed him the um, the brace thing and he sort of jumped back horrified. He was like, ah! And we were like, what's wrong? We thought it was beautiful. Everyone we've shown it to thought it was great. He's like, all I see is bra eyes because for him, he's looking at it as a book. And so he could see the gutter and he was just like bra eyes across the top. And so it's that kind of thing of, I love bringing him in and I love having him in from, and it's a luxury and I think a great sort of rarity of that the three of us get to work together from the beginning. Um, Because every time I have an idea about how to organize, or I can sort of distill information into groups, but I might not have the best idea about how to represent it visually. And the two of them, that's exactly what they're really good at. So I can bring them this stuff and then together we can figure out, should this be a Venn diagram? Or if this is gonna be a circular diagram, how do we fit it on the page the best? And what's what's gonna you know what's what what do we do so information doesn't get lost in the middle gutter? Um, just yesterday Wendy and I were talking about a kind of chart that I've seen in a lot of cookbooks, and I was like, gosh, it is really useful, but I just don't want to do that same chart again. And we were, and I was like, could we do it as a Venn diagram? And she said, no, I just think it's too much information; it's too complicated. And then we realized that the classic chart actually makes the most sense, but that we could also like add another layer of information by organizing all the produce on there by season and assigning a different watercolor to each season so that it will be like a beautiful color watercolor spread. You know, this kind of stuff that's so fun and amazing and also I think an incredible, it's a lot of work, so much work. It's probably adding six or eight months to our process to work together in this way. And it's a lot more expensive to bring two humans for whom this is like a big part of their career for almost a year. But um, but you know when you have a photographer work on a cookbook, usually all those photos are shot in four or five days and it's done. And so this has kind of been this amazing ongoing collaboration for which I'm really 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 grateful. So and it's cool to just have people who have different priorities because we we're always bumping up against each other and. and We're just trying to make the best possible thing together.
1: Yeah. Well, so in college, um, as I'm sure you know, uh, (laughs) there is a heavy emphasis on networking as this sort of formal ritual uh, that I think um, a lot of people think their success depends upon. And it sounds like obviously you've made some pretty great connections in in who you work with, but how did you make those connections?
0: Um well, I would say my no- my like go-to thing is writing the fan letter. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> I wrote a fan letter to Wendy, I wrote a fan letter to Michael Pollan, I wrote a fan letter to Alice Waters. Like I've written a fan when I was, you know, when I was 9 years old, I was writing fan letters to my favorite authors. I think there's nothing nothing. And in fact, that when my book was up at auction, the um, editor I chose wrote me the like most craziest fan letter I'd ever received. It worked. I got a dose of my own medicine. And so <laughs> and so um, there's just something I think about really getting to know and appreciating someone's work and then expressing that to them that makes a big difference. I have I have I I wouldn't call myself the most personally resilient person. you know, I, I'm really sensitive but somehow I have a great professional resilience. Like I will ask for anything and be okay with being rejected and I'll ask for it again and again and again. And so that's, I think that like, that just just the like readiness to ask and to go introduce myself to someone or try and meet them or write them a letter, that's gotten me really, really far. And another thing that I think makes a huge difference, that's something I've been thinking about a lot over the past maybe five years, a lot more, is that um, I really want to work and surround myself with nice people and people who are kind to the people around them and generous and giving. And so um, sometimes you meet people who are really well known for what they do or really great at what they do. And they're just not that nice or not that nice to you. And to me, maybe at a different point in my life, I would have just sacrificed and like done whatever it took to work with them or be near them. But now I think there's nothing more important than being a kind person and being generous and being nice. And so um, I think that's like maybe the number one rule of who I choose to be around and who I would recommend that you choose to be around. <laughs>
1: So it's 9 p.m. I'm in my kitchen. There's nothing crazy in my fridge, but I want to make some dinner. What do I make?
0: Um, do you have eggs? I do. Okay. Do you have pasta? Uh, yeah. Okay. Um I have orchietti. Oh, okay. ooh, that sounds delicious. Um you would either make Oh, do you have rice?
1: Um no. Maybe
0: not. Okay. <laughs> Maybe I do, but for do you hypothetical reasons. Yeah, I okay. Have,
1: there's some arugula.
0: Okay. Well, there's I would say number 1 choice I well, my, my number one go-to when I work at your house is rice, like leftover rice with fried egg and greens. I eat that probably three or four nights a week. But um, you could make a delicious frittata. You can make pasta carbonara. You could make... <laughs> you... Um, I eggs are sort of for me the thing I always recommend just having on hand because they are so versatile and yeah one I mean you could make popovers and eat them with jam for dinner. You could have pancakes. You could eat bacon and eggs. <laughs> like a, an egg a dinner makes. You know, uh I think I always have frozen chicken stock at home. And so a lot of nights I'll just put like spinach in the bottom of a hot bo- in the bottom of a bowl pour hot stock in and then add a poached egg and you have delicious like soup with spinach and stuff and if you have like lime or ginger it's so good Mm. or just sriracha so good yeah (laughs) Or the other thing I always have in the fridge parmesan cheese that pretty much will make anything delicious
1: (laughs) tell us again when your book is due out
0: oh it'll be out March 2017 in all the stores all of them (laughs) salt fat acid heat with the cute illustrations Thank you for
1: listening. For more information, please visit our website at www.yale.edu slash sustainablefood.